It's been a few weeks. I missed you guys a little bit the past few weeks, uh, not being up here in the pulpit. Uh, if you were here last week, I, I shared, I, had a, I was able to take a trip of a lifetime uh, through the generosity of our elders and some friends here at the church to uh, send me out to, to Israel to do a little bit of studying for a couple weeks with Dallas Theological Seminary. They led us an incredible trip. The reason I bring that up is that we're hoping sometime next year, uh, maybe next summer, shortly after that, maybe into the fall, something like that. Uh, we're going to be able to plan this church-wide trip, uh, to be able to, and you might be able to have the opportunity to go out there too, but it absolutely was a trip of a lifetime. I'm incredibly grateful for it. I think I counted up something like about 47 different biblical sites that we had a chance to go check out there in the promised land, and so that was an inc incredible opportunity. We're with these tour guides that are pretty much walking encyclopedias of, uh, of, of history and uh, the Bible and everything, and then you're partnering with a couple of DTS professors that are, we're doing devos and worship settings at each of these kind of, um, these, these very significant places all around Israel. Just an incredible, incredible opportunity. So thank you for letting me be out for a couple of weeks and go and experience that. And the uh, reason I say that, again, I'm hoping and praying that this time next year, maybe a little bit after that or something, but uh, that you'll be able to join us on a trip there and, and do the exact same thing. A little heads up, you may want to start saving right now. It's not... It's not a, not a cheap or easy trip or anything like that, but one that is absolutely uh, worth your time. And so um, with that, I also want to draw your attention to something in the bulletin. You've been paying attention in the, the finance section of the bulletin. Um, I've been getting a number of questions about this. You probably noticed we're doing fantastic financially as a church. Just want to say uh, thank you to that. That is a testimony of God's, um, God's generosity working through our church body. And one of the questions we always get is, okay, now that we got a little bit of a surplus, where does that money go? Um, a couple things about that. We don't. We're, our financial year, our fiscal year, ends on June 30th, and so we turn over July 1, and so we don't we don't go mid year and just be like, hey, we're doing well, we're going to blow it all right now, and then hey, we got shortcomings later on or something like that. Uh, we do. We, we kind of turn that over around the the new fiscal year going on there. Also, just want to remind you, we we talked about this about four to six weeks ago, and um, every surplus we're we're moving. Uh, towards in, engaging more on a missional basis here as a church body. And so everything that's coming in extra here in this church, honestly, on everything that we, we give is going more towards the mission of God. We're, you're going to be seeing this increase uh, in this next fiscal year uh, in missions mobilization. That's going to be short-term trips. It's going to be a little bit longer trips. It's going to be local partnerships and things of that nature. Uh, we've also talked about developing a church planting residency program, first of which is going to be a Hispanic church plant, which is going to operate from within our church body and help reach the surrounding uh, neighborhoods that are right around here. We talked about a mission-integrated preschool that we're going to be developing here uh, in the next two years that are going to help us reach families in our community. And we've also talked about investing a little bit more in our facilities, especially towards the back end of our campus as, uh, you know, that whole entire shopping center is about to get a giant facelift, not from us, we don't own all those things or anything. That's the city, but they're bringing in an incredible community center and park and new shopping over there, which is going to bring a ton of people back to that back area. And so we're preparing for all of those things. And so as you're wondering and saying, hey, where is this going to go? Uh, those are the things that we're, we're really going to be prioritizing this next fiscal year as we move into that. So I just wanted you guys to have a little heads up there and uh, to get excited about that because uh, it is all going back to the mission of God for the glory of his name. And so um, one more thing, as we get into God, the preaching of God's word this morning, I want to invite you to pray with me this morning. Uh, we have a number of families here that are associated with Brentfield Elementary, and, uh, which means that uh, this past week uh, we lost a teacher from Brentfield Elementary, Miss Dominique Bourgeois. Um, she's a young woman, uh, and I know some of the, your kids 
had her as a teacher um, recently, uh, or maybe even in the past. She's a young woman who's battled with cancer for the past year and a half. Um, she was pregnant with her firstborn child, and uh, they did successfully remove the child, and I believe that the, the baby is doing well right now. However, in the process, she ended up uh, losing her life. And uh, I know a number of you have a lot of ties over at Brentfield Elementary. You may be mourning. Maybe some of your kids got news of that this past week, and you're kind of wondering what to do with that. How do you process these things? Uh, on Friday, um, our church had the opportunity to provide all of their teachers with free lunch. Uh, our team from Kids Beach Club, which many of you are a part of, got to go and minister to students and, and just be a part of some of the grieving process and stuff there. And so just wanted to bring that to your attention and say, church, let's be praying for our community the bourgeois family, um, and any of the other families and friends and teachers that may be associated uh, with that loss. And so I'm going to invite you to pray with me as uh, we go to the Word of God together. Heavenly Father, we are heavy for the bourgeois family. Uh, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be, uh, would make your presence known and felt to them in the middle of their grieving right now. God, um, all the teachers, all the students, all the friends and family there, God, would they feel and know your presence, know that you're a God of compassion, that you're not distant and void and far away and, and unsympathetic when we cry and when we mourn. You went through the exact same things yourself. And Father, I pray that they be able to cling to you and just know the joy of your fellowship even in the middle of their sadness. God, knowing that she is right there in your presence as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, fully healed, fully whole um, in your presence. God, we give you this morning. As your word is opened up, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, keep us from any distraction, any burden that may keep us from listening to you and receiving everything that you'd have for us today. God, we give you um, everything that we say and do, and it's in the, G in the mighty and holy name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen and amen. Well, church, uh, as I said before, it's great to see you guys. I've missed being up here and uh, rejoicing with you guys for the past few weeks. If you are new, first time in a long time, we started a new series back in the fall essentially on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. And so we're moving out of the parables and the teaching ministry of Jesus now, and we're going to be getting into some of the encounters that he had with various people. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 22. Uh, we're going to be in verses 34 through 40 this morning. Uh, at the same time, we're also going to move quickly through that passage, and then we're going to tag it with Revelation chapter 2. And so uh, you can, you can kind of tag both spots in your Bible to follow along this morning. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, no big deal. Uh, I'm going to be putting some of these passages up on the screen. It'll be easy for you to follow along uh, with us this morning. Uh, in 1961, Vince Lombardi, who is easily one of the, the greatest NFL coaches that the, the world has ever known, uh, they're coming off a devastating loss in 1960 to the Eagles in the championship game. And he gathers his team for, spring, uh, for uh, essentially the, the first training camp in the next year. And the team is kind of, it was a devastating loss. They lost it in the fourth quarter. The Eagles came back. And he's trying to, it's the beginning of his run as, of being uh, an incredible coach. The first of five championships in the next seven years is before all that stuff began. He's gathered his team together in the locker room and he's trying to figure out how to motivate them and everything. And, and uh, he decides to come up and he gives this infamous speech that many of you guys have heard before. John, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. But, uh, but he comes up there and you probably have heard this before, but uh, the whole team is gathered around him and he walks up to the very front of the room and he simply holds up a football and he says, gentlemen, this is a football. 
right? And he just takes his football and he just, just starts describing it. It's made of leather. It's got all these laces. Uh, you, you throw it, you hold it, you cling to it, you run into the end zone. And he just starts explaining some of the most basic of principles you could possibly imagine. He holds up a pair of socks. John Wooden would do the exact same thing. And he does the same thing. Gentlemen, this is a pair of socks. This is how you rightly put them on your feet. They're designed to keep you warm and your feet dry so you don't get blisters. You're able to play this game with excellence. He pulls out a rule book and he begins to read the rules of how to play football, some of the basics of, a, uh, of the game. And he begins to read all these different things. And, and as he's doing this, the team is looking at him and they're kind of confused by the whole deal going, okay, why, coach, what are you talking about? And uh, why are you doing these different things? But the reason that he went there is because he firmly believed that greatness requires the mastery of a few very, very simple things. And the reason that I bring that up is because like the passage that we're going to be looking at today, I mean, there's no other way to put it except it's just an incredibly simple passage. It's a passage that I reference over and over again in, in all of our preaching. It comes up all the time. You're going to see it plastered all around the church. In fact, as we're reading through this in Matthew 22, 34 to 40, it may sound a little bit like, hey, church, uh, this is a football, right? But here it is, church. Let, let, let's not confuse simplicity with significance, because what Jesus is going to say is that of all the different commands and of everything that God has said throughout the entirety of his word, this is the one thing that's going to carry the most weight. And so I want to jump into that a little bit this morning, the simplicity of the great commandment. We're going to be in Matthew 22 again. I have your Bibles. Let's go ahead and turn there. As I said before, this is a passage that many of you are going to know very, very well. Again, we quote it all the time. It's affectionately known as the great commandment. And then we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2 right after that. But as I said before, we're jumping into some of the different encounters that Jesus had with various people. And so this is a chapter where he is being opposed by the Pharisees and by the Sadducees every turn in every possible way. Uh, we know the Pharisees well. They were often being rebuked by Jesus for a number of different things. A lot of times they're, they're uh, empty religiosity, their they're hypocritical religious practice. Jesus isn't, isn't really going to rebuke them in this passage. There's just going to be a whole lot of confrontation as these two groups are finally coming together in their opposition to Jesus. Now, the Sadducees were kind of this, this, this minority religious party that had all the political power at that point in time. And so there wasn't a whole ton of them, but uh, they were very religious. They were opposed to the Pharisees and some theological issues, but they had all the political power. The Pharisees were greater in number. They had the affection and influence among the people. Uh, however, they didn't exactly have the, amount of, the same amount of uh, political power that the Sadducees did. And so they're going back and forth in this whole chapter. They're together united under this one cause. We don't like Jesus. We don't like the fact that people are claiming that he is the king of the Jews and he is the promised Messiah. Verse 15, I believe that uh, Cameron talked about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, the, I believe as the Pharisees come and they try to trap Jesus in his words, talking to him about paying taxes. And Jesus says the very famous verse, he says, render under Caesar what is Caesar's. Um, kind of, you know, baffles them a little bit there. The Sadducees come and they attack him next and they talk to him about marriage and the resurrection. Again, Jesus comes and combats that a little bit more and they're all in awe of his wisdom and his knowledge and the way that he's able to teach with, as one who has authority. Um, it's the Pharisees' time to come back and challenge him once again. Instead of the group coming and doing it together, they're going to come and nominate one person. Uh, the text is going to describe it as an expert in the law. Some translations are going to say that this person is a lawyer, which, is, uh, which really just means that uh, he understands the civil law really, really well. He also understands the biblical law of Moses and, uh, with the um, same amount of weight. So this is a learned person who understands all the details. And this expert in the law comes and, and asks Jesus this one famous question. He basically says this. 
He says, okay, Jesus, of all the different commands that there are in Scripture, and the Pharisees have counted up about 613 of them all throughout uh, of the Mosaic law there. And they had this habit of dividing it up between the major ones and the minor ones. And so this expert comes and he says, okay, Jesus, of all the 613 laws that there are, which one is the greatest commandment? In other words, which one is the one that we really need to follow here? Because the reality is, right, right 613 commands, like none of us are going to be able to get it all, all, all done, right? Like we're going to struggle a little bit with this. None of us are going to be going to master 613 commands. So can you simplify this whole thing for me? And you remember exactly what Jesus says. It's the great commandment. He essentially quotes Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6 as they're about to enter the promised land. Uh, Moses is preparing them. And Jesus says this. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And then Mark and Luke are going to add strength as well. This is the first and the greatest commandment. In other words, it's not love your neighbor as yourself. That's going to be the second greatest. That's going to be the second commandment, which is going to come right next. It's not judge not lest you be judged, which is probably the commandment we value most culturally today. It's not love your family first and foremost, love your wife, your kids, your husband first and foremost. It's not even love them the best that you can possibly love them or anything like that. It's just very, very simply love the Lord your God, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Very, very simple, not so easy to do. I love the words of uh, Hirolamo Savonarola. I practiced pronouncing that name all week long. It's an Italian preacher and martyr from the 15th century. Uh, very famous. He said this. He says, there's two kinds of Christians. Those who sincerely love the Lord Jesus Christ and those who just as sincerely believe that they do. A few weeks back, I'm sitting there in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane, this place where Jesus would pray to the Father just before he would be uh, just before he would be betrayed by Judas and, and sent to the cross to suffer, bleed, and die. And we're sitting there in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane having an incredibly powerful time of worship. And we're overlooking the Temple Mount. And one of my professors, Mark Yarbrough, made the observation as we're recounting the history of humanity and, and uh, the rebellion of man against God in the Garden, the rebellion of his people against God all throughout the judges, all throughout uh, the kings, all throughout the different um, captivities, the Babylonian, the Assyrian captivity, the rejection of the Jews and, and the people in the first century when they were responding to Jesus. And he made this one simple comment as we're reflecting on what's going on there. He simply said, the entire history of Israel and humanity, especially here in Jerusalem, is the story of how easy it is to drift from the simplicity of this one command. Church, anybody ever felt that before? How we, uh, you ever been there before where uh, in this profound time with the Lord, maybe it was a camp experience, maybe it was a child, maybe it was recently, and you're making all these promises to the Lord, you're saying, okay, God, that was the last time that that's going to take place, like I'm all in with you, like I'm, I'm all in, I love you, I'm on this camp high, like all of my life, it's all yours, I'm going to sell everything I've got, I'm going to go to the mission field, and you make all of these promises one week, and then all of a sudden the next week, like you're struggling to be able to even pick up your Bible. I mean, we, we know what that's like, right? I love the way Andy Stanley said it. He says, it's a whole lot easier to fall in love than it is to stay in love. And he, of course, he's talking about it in the context of romantic relationships, but I think he's nailed it exactly right. Like, like it's really, really easy for us to fall in love and not as easy to remain in love. 
It's exactly the problem that, that Jesus is going to be addressing actually in Revelation chapter 2. And so from this point forward, there's, there's about 50 years that have passed when uh, Jesus is going to be speaking in Revelation chapter 2. Now, you remember this is going to be taking place around 90 AD. John, the apostle John, the beloved John, has been exiled to the island of Patmos. Um, Jesus, around the early 30s, has, been, has ascended into heaven. He sent the, the Holy Spirit. The gospel has exploded on the scene. The church has exploded. It's gone from about 500 believers to tens of thousands of believers at this point in time. The church has exploded. There's a massive opposition and persecution which, take, which has taken place. And in Revelation chapter 2, um, Jesus is going to be speaking to seven different churches throughout Asia Minor. And he's going to be doing it through a dream, essentially, that he gives, of John, give, gives to John uh, of the future. Now, here's what he has to say uh, through John. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. These are the words of him who held the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, before we get all confused in the language of Revelation here, uh, he's clearly explained this part of what he's talking about in the dream here. Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. And uh, he's essentially said, okay, um, the seven stars are essentially the seven angels of the seven churches, okay? And so angels, we know, is a word that literally means messenger. And so he could be talking about one of two things, literally a, garden, a guardian angel over each of these seven different churches, Probably not. Uh, it also could mean a pastor, an apostle, a bishop of sorts, someone who is over the authoritatively over these different brand new church plants that are in Asia Minor. I think that's probably what he's leading to, probably because this letter is going to be read to the church and they're going to actually receive these different things. And so I think that's what he's talking about right here. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches, okay? And so Jesus is the one that's going to be walking among them. And so here's what he's saying. To the pastor, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, to the church in Dallas, these are the words of Jesus who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven churches. Now I want you to listen to how he describes and applauds the work of this church that's here in Ephesus. Here's what he says. He says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work, and I know your perseverance. In other words, church, like, I know that you guys are doers. I know that you're not that lazy kind that kind of sits on the back and doesn't really do a whole lot. Like, you guys are active doers. You're engaging different things. You're working really, really, really hard. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them to be false. In other words, on top of being great doers, uh, hypothetically, of the, of the word of God, uh, you also love the truth. And so you are a people that, that has wisdom and discernment. You're able to discern between truth and error. There are people who are claiming to be apostles and prophets, and they're getting up there and they're saying false things, and you have the wisdom and discernment to be able to say, okay, that is a false gospel right there. That is not right. And on top of that, you have the strength to be able to stand up and to oppose those certain things and to protect the pulpit and not let false doctrine be propagated from the front of their church. In other words, so, so you're not just great doers. Like, you guys are working hard, but you also know the truth truth in such a way that you're discerning and, and you're fighting for the truth of the gospel to remain. Uh, a little bit later in verse 6, he's going to say, you're, you also hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also detest and hate. In other words, the Nicolaitans were these people that essentially reveled in a licentious living. These are people that could have perverted the doctrine of grace and kind of used grace as a license to continue to sin and said, hey, there's going to be forgiveness anyway, so may as well enjoy pleasure, seek after those things. That's who the Nicolaitans were. These were a people that, that, uh, that, that reveled in their sin. 
And so he's saying, you guys are great doers. You guys stand for the truth of God's word. On top of that, you've been fantastic at resisting sin. These people are coming in and they're saying, okay, engage in licentiousness, pursue pleasure at all costs. That's not who you guys are. You guys don't engage in those kinds of activities. You guys have not embraced the way of culture, the way of this, this, this kind of a movement going on, even among the Nicolaitans, these people who professed faith, right? You guys are not buying into those different things. He continues in verse 3, and he says, You also have persevered, and you've endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary of doing that. Church, what's he talking about right there? Like, he's talking about legitimate persecution going on. This is what we talked about a little bit, like the entire context of the New Testament, especially in the epistles and thereon, is set in this context of incredible amounts of persecution and hardship. You remember the book of Acts. You remember Stephen being the first martyr of the Christian faith. You remember the Apostle Paul, the dude was, was, was in prison for his faith over and over and over again. He was tortured repeatedly for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter was wrongfully imprisoned. That was the story of the early church. In 70 AD, the Romans are going to come in. Herod's temple from 4 BC all the way to about uh, 64 AD has finally been rebuilt. The Jews are able to gather together to worship there. The Romans are going to come in, and in such opposition, they're going to completely wipe out and destroy the temple, church. Like, that's the setting uh, for believers in the first century. In other words, when we're talking about persecution, we're not talking about Starbucks putting Xmas on their cups, Right? Like, like that's, not the, that's not persecution, right? That's a joke compared to what they actually went through in the first century. Believers are dying for their faith. And what Jesus is saying here, like that, that, that's who you guys are. You guys have persevered. You've endured hardship for my name. And, and you've not grown weary, but here it is. In the middle of all of that incredible stuff, I still have this one thing against you. You've forsaken your first love. In the middle of all of that incredible activity, You've still forsaken your first love. Church, how in the world does that happen? How in the world are you engaged in such incredible uh, religious activity, enduring persecution and hardship, knowing the truth of God's word, fighting for matters of truth, and, and, and still forsake your first love? I mean, presumably these are pastors that, um, that have essentially turned ministry into some sort of a job. This is a church body that's, that's gathered together and created it, and they're doing it week after week as a hobby or something that's going to promote their own business or something that's going to create their own social prestige or something like that. They've forgotten what's going on there. Church, like how in the world do you do all these great things and forsake your first love? I mean, these were people that were active in church and did everything that you possibly should do. Church, don't miss what's happening here. What the Ephesians are showing us and what Jesus is showing us through the life of the Ephesians is that there is a way to engage your mind that does not lead you to worship. Church, like there is a way to be strong. There is a way to sing songs. There is a way to do church. There is a way to be religious that has nothing to do with what he has called us to first and foremost before every other possible thing. What Jesus is saying here is that you can do all kinds of great things. And if it's not done out of love for me first, then you have forsaken your first love. Because before I have called you to the great commission, I have called you to the great commandment. Before I have called you to people, I have called you 
to myself. The reason that I've called you to myself is because I have first loved you. I have sent Jesus Christ to bleed, suffer, and die, to be raised again three days later, that you and I may have life for all of eternity. And because he has first loved you, you can then go and love him. And before every other thing that you do, I am calling you to love me first, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Church, like that's what we're talking about when we talk about worship here in the church body. It's what we do when we gather here on a weekly basis. We are talking about uh, responding with the entirety of our being, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to the character of God and the reality that he has first loved us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's, it's, It's Mary Magdalene in Matthew chapter 28. Easily one of my favorite stories in scripture, this beautiful picture of a woman who's beholding the resurrected Jesus and falling at his feet and worshiping him. I mean, you remember this story. She goes with her friends, and, and they go to the tomb on the third day, and they, they, they go there and realize that, hey, the tomb is empty. He's not there. They're mourning and confused, and they don't know exactly what's going on. And it says here in verse 8, it says that they left the tomb quickly with great fear and with great joy. And they ran to report that the tomb was empty to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them while they were on the way to the disciples. And it says that they came up to Jesus, and when they saw that it was him, they took hold of his feet And she began to just worship him. The word there is a beautiful word we've talked about a lot. It's proskuneo is the word for worship. And it's a word that literally means to lower yourself and to blow kisses towards someone who is in authority over you. Typically, it was done uh, towards a king who may be coming to town. You would go out to the street that day. The king would be passing through. You would lower yourself. You would lie prostrate before him. And maybe you literally physically blow kisses up to him, most likely not, but you're giving him honor. And in that moment, you were saying, you have all authority over the entirety of my life. And all of a sudden, here's Mary, and she's seeing Jesus walk out of the tomb alive. And she had no idea what was taking place. And then all of a sudden, she sees his face, and she beholds him. And she sees that this is the resurrected Christ This is the Jesus who touched my life and set me free from the bondage of seven different demonic spirits. This is the Jesus who set me free from being oppressed the entirety of my life. This is the Jesus who called his own death and resurrection. This is the Jesus who conquered sin and death. And the only thing that she can think to do that made sense in that moment was to dive at his feet and to grab hold of his ankles and to worship him, our resurrected king of all kings and lord of all lords. Church, that's what we're talking about in worship. It's all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. I want to get really, really specific in what he's talking about here. Like Paul's going to illustrate this really, really well for us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Here's what he's going to say. He's going to say, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, church, like that's what it looks like to worship him and to love him with your strength. It's it's to give of yourself fully as a sacrificial offering back unto the Lord, all of your physical strength, all of your spiritual strength, uh, the fact that you are alive, the fact that you may be healthy, the fact that you're able to do and accomplish different things, the fact that he's given you different spiritual gifts, the fact that he's given you different opportunities right in front of you every single day. It's a recognition that everything that I have is not actually mine because it has been gifted and entrusted to me by the Heavenly Father. And to love him with your strength is to simply say, God, everything that I have is not actually mine. It's all yours. And so I'm offering it back to you as a sacrifice and as an offering, all for the glory and praise of your name. 
On Thursday this past week, Kat and I were heading back from a, a fundraiser that a, of a ministry a friend had started a little while ago, um, celebrating and honoring children who have Down syndrome. We were coming back and talking about heroes in our life, and Kat reminded me of Miss Betty, who is easily one of our heroes in the faith and had been really, really significant in her own walk with the Lord, and she reminded me of this story, and we'd had her to come speak in the singles ministry we were a part of at the time, and we were driving her back to her home in Duncanville that evening, and we were talking, and Miss Betty had spent the majority of her life in Peru working with an unreached people group, literally in the jungles of Peru, who did not have a written language, much less a written copy of the Bible herself. And so she and her husband spent about 50 years of their life living in these jungles with a completely unreached group, helping them develop their own language, and then translating the scriptures into that language. That's a pretty worthwhile pursuit, right? Late 80s, um, she comes back to the United States. Her husband's passed away. They're doing the finishing touches on the translation of the, of the dictionary for them and for the, um, their copy of the Word of God. And we're taking her back, and, and Kat asks her, okay, Miss Betty, what's next for you? Now that you're kind of you're wrapping up things in Peru, and she's like, well, I'm not actually done with Peru, but what's happening on a day-to-day basis? She goes, you know what? I'm, I'm praying for my neighbors, and, you, and I'm inviting every single one of them into my home at some point this year for dinner, and I'm going to share the gospel with every single person who lives on my street in hopes that they're going to come to know um, the Lord Jesus Christ like I do. And she showed us this calendar of every, the names and the address of everyone on her street that she was praying through, God, would you prepare their heart? Would you prepare their soul to receive your grace? Would you give me the opportunity with them? And, and, and she did it. She invited every single person on that street into her home for a meal, which she prepared in her late 80s in hopes of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. I'll never forget going and doing a church project. Uh, one time we were out at this apartment complex that we affectionately called Hidalgo. Um, it, was a, it was a Spanish-speaking community. Obviously, Miss Betty was fluent in Spanish and probably a million other languages, too. Um, and so we were out there doing a, working on the apartment complex, helping them fix up a lot of different things. They had about 150 different people from the church out there working that day, and there's a lot of daily activity there anyway. But um, obviously, Miss Betty couldn't pick up shovels and move dirt and you know, fix fences and things of that nature, but she brought her photo album with her of Peru. And she went around the complex knocking on doors with someone who was going to help her walk that day. And she just wanted to go and pray with people, share them her pictures and share her story with them and to share the gospel of the different neighbors, neighbors that were there at Peru. But would you believe it? She meets a family that's there that's actually from Peru, knows the area that she'd been witnessing in her entire life. And Miss Betty, through her pictures, was able to go and to lead that family to the Lord that day. Church, some of us love to work hard, don't we? Like some of us are all about being really, really, really strong. Church, when was the last time that you offered the entirety of your strength as a sacrifice and as an offering back to the Lord and you said, all of my breath, all of my strength, my ability to walk, my ability to speak, my ability to lift things, my ability to have these opportunities physically in front of other people, all of the spiritual strength which you've done in me through the indwelling Holy Spirit to give me understanding of the gospel, to give me spiritual gifts, to give me abilities to be able to be used by you for the sake of your glory. When was the last time that we did this inventory of all these different things and we said, God, everything that I have is not actually mine because it has been gifted to me by you and I'm now returning it back to you for the glory and the praise of your name. Miss Betty knows that you don't hit a certain age and all of a sudden stop. 
You are offering it to the Lord. And what Jesus is saying is, I want all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength as an offering back to me. Paul continues in this, and he just simply says, um, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present yourselves, your bodies, as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. That is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, that is the definition of what we're talking about right now. And then he says this about mind. He says, do not be conformed to the world. In other words, church, don't think like the world thinks. Don't be caught up in the majority of what, hey, if these people over here think this and say that it's true, then I'm going to follow along that same way. Don't think as the world thinks. You know how the world thinks today? The world thinks about me. Individualism. I am first and foremost. That, that's what it says. It says that I am my highest loyalty. I am my highest source of truth. If it makes me happy and I'm smart enough to see how, uh, and not smart enough to see how it can harm anyone else, then I'm going to do whatever it is that I want to do. And what Jesus is simply saying here is don't buy into it. Don't buy into it. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you're able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and that which is acceptable and that which is perfect. In other words, church, like that's what it looks like to love the Lord your God with the entirety of your mind. It's not just knowing a whole lot of things, right? The Ephesians knew a whole lot of things. The Ephesians fought for truth. The Ephesians were able to, even able to discern between truth and error. Like it is so much more than knowing certain things. It is an ability and a desire to study the word of God in such a way that leads to worship and spirit-filled transformation. It's exactly why we talk about that um, in our soap studies on a daily basis, that you and I would know how to engage with the word of God in such a way that leads to worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and spirit-filled transformation throughout the entirety of our lives. Church, I praise God uh, for professors like Howard Hendricks at the beginning of my seminary days. I remember sitting in one of those early classes, and he looked at the entire class, and he goes, student, do not ever separate your academic studies from the worship of God. Do not ever get in the habit of saying, hey, this is for school, and this is for Jesus. Pastors don't ever get in the habit of saying this is for the church, this is for a sermon, and this is for the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not ever get in the habit of reading the word in such a way that it is filling up your mind and never penetrating the depths of your heart and your soul. I'll never forget that, church. What, what Paul is saying here is that the entire thing is connected. What Jesus is simply saying uh, through a little bit of nuance here is that I'm calling you to love me with your all, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what he's saying is the entire thing is deeply connected. Church, how in the world are you going to love him with your heart and your strength if your mind is not constantly being renewed uh, by the word of God? This past week I was watching a movie called Tortured for Christ. I've told you about the book before. It was the book that... God used as a late sophomore in high school uh, to really grab hold of my affections and really change my life. It's the biography of Richard Wormbrand. I've told you about him a number of times before too, but he was a Romanian pastor um, just after the war when um, the communists were taking over Romania and, and throwing Christians into prison and all kinds of persecution and, and real heavy things going on there. Obviously, he had spent 14 years of his life in a communist prison being tortured for his faith. He was actually miraculously released, started Voice of the Martyrs ministry, uh, came back. That's a whole different story. But in the middle of this movie, he tells a story about how he and the other pastors, knowing that prison was about to come and knowing that they were about to really, really suffer um, big time for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, they began to prepare for that day. 
And he and these other pastors and different leaders in the underground church at that time, they would gather together and they began to memorize scripture, 366 different Bible verses, all about not being afraid, right? And, and, and he shows the story. And so he would memorize a new one every single day. And there's a scene in the movie where they just taken him. They've just taken him from his home. They threw a bag over his head. He's sitting in the back seat of this police car. It's not a police car, but anyway, it's like that's who's taking him and taking him into the prison. And uh, they're all making fun of him and mocking him and things of that nature. And he asks him the question. He says, let me ask you, what day is today? And they laugh. And they're like, what does it matter what day today is? And he's like, I, I want to know what day it is. And he's got a bag over his face and everything. And they laugh at him. And then they say something like, March 3rd, 19 whatever it was. And he goes, ah, oh, and he's speaking out loud through the bag. And he goes, ah, oh, March 3rd, 19, whatever it was, Isaiah 35, verse 4, be strong. Do not be afraid. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance and divine retribution to save you. And he just starts quoting these verses over and over and over again out loud. Joshua 1, 9, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Isaiah 43, 1, he who created and formed you and also redeemed you, do, so do, do not be afraid. I have summoned you by name and you are mine. I, Psalm 94, 19, when anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me incredible joy. And the movie went on to describe this scene where he would be imprisoned by these torturers for 14 years. And he would come out from the scenes of being tortured by these people that were trying to get him to recant of the faith. He would be go, he'd go back to these prison cells with other inmates who were being forced to do the exact same thing. And he would just gather with these people and he would just, he would just quote and, and recite the verse for the day. And they would all recite it together and they'd just whisper over and over again in their cells. And he would go on to say, like, that is the thing that sustained me during those 14 years while I was being tortured for my faith. The reality of his presence and the renewal of my mind, the power of God's word and action. Church, some of us have been praying for courage, and we've been praying for strength and for wisdom, and the reality is that the answer has been on your desk, gathering dusk the entire time. Like, do we even read our Bibles anymore? I mean, when, when, when was the last time that we, just, that we just opened up the word simply because we could, and we just buried our face in it, and then we began to memorize it and, and commit it deep inside of our soul so that it could take life inside of us and produce the strength and the courage and the intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ that we all desire. Church, like, don't miss what's happening. Like the Ephesians church, they knew what truth was. They were strong and they fought against it. Yet there is a way to engage your mind that does not lead you to worship and does not lead to any kind of a legitimate spirit-filled transformation in your life. And what Jesus is saying is, like, you've forsaken your first love. You, you, you've elevated the commandment. You've, you've elevated the commission. You've elevated work and all these different kinds of things. And you've forgotten what I've called you to first and foremost. The psalmist continues and shows us Saul, uh, soul and heart in Psalm 95, 1. He says, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully, I love this, to the rock of my salvation. In other words, the one who saves and redeems my soul. Church, that's what the soul is. The soul is the part of your being which lasts for all of eternity. It's the part that will never fade, will never die away. 
And so when he's talking about loving the Lord your God with all of your soul, it's the core part of your identity. It is the part that will never waver or change. It's the part that is absolutely true of you, whether you believe it or not. It's the part that simply says, no matter what's happening all around me, I'm still going to be the same because my soul has been saved and I know who I came to worship. He is the rock of my salvation, the one who saves and redeems my soul. And I love the joy of the psalmist here. He simply says, come, let's sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before his presence with thanksgiving and let's shout joyfully to him with psalms. In other words, I, I love this passage because he's showing us that like, when you and I remember who God actually is, and when we dwell and meditate on those realities and we remember everything that he's accomplished for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what he's showing us is that it is okay for us to sing with joy as men and women who've actually been saved. Like it's okay to be caught up in singing praises to the Lord our God. And it's okay to remember that we're not just singing praises to a God who is distant and far away. We're singing praises to a God who did not leave us alone in the middle of our sin. When we were lost and dead and in the middle of that place, God fixed his love on us. And he sent us his son, Jesus Christ, that we may live with him now and for all of eternity. And what he's giving us permission to do is to not just come in and sing mindless songs, but to engage our heart and to engage our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength in this experience, and to joyfully sing unto him as men and women who've actually been saved. And beyond that, it's like, it seems like the psalmist, this isn't just a suggestion, Right? I mean, it almost seems like he's kind of militarily kind of saying, you need to do this. Like, it's, come, let us sing for joy. It's a command. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 47, sing praises to God. Sing praises. In other words, church, like, sing with me now. Like, he's telling us, do this. Sing joyfully to the king. Sing praises. Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a brand new song. Sing to the Lord. Um, sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation day after day after day. And it's not just a psalmist either. Like Paul's going to do this too. Like Burley Paul is going to say the same thing. Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and in hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, he's kind of like saying, hey, live life like it's a musical, if you will. <laughs> right? Like take such joy in the presence of Jesus. Take such joy in knowing who he is. Take such joy in who he is and what he's done for you that you can't help but erupt in joy as you are thinking about all of these different kinds of things. Like Zephaniah 3.17 is going to say, God sings. It's going to say that he exalts over his people with loud singing. In other words, like he takes delight in us. And the reason we're able to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is simply because he has first loved us. In Revelation, the elders and the saints are going to be sitting in the throne room of God, beholding his beauty. And the only thing that makes sense for them to do is to lay down and to do exactly as Mary Magdalene when they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Church, how in the world can we behold the beauty of God and not have a song to sing? Like how in the world can we think about who he is and everything that he's done in accomplishing our salvation and not erupt in joy at some point? along the way. I mean, I think of my own salvation coming to faith at an early age in a Christian home with parents who were awesome in a church that was healthy and awesome with brothers and sisters who were right there along the way. And I can't help but think that like God in his infinite love sent his son Jesus and awakened my soul to the reality that, you know what, I could have been along the same path as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, people who went along with religious tradition, people who knew a lot of things about God, people who mastered the church game and whose heart was far away. 
And in the beauty of God's grace, he awakened my soul to who he is and made my heart sing to the reality of his majesty and everything that he's accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. Church, how in the world can you think about your own testimony and what he did to bring about salvation in you and not have something to sing? I'll never forget a number of years ago, it's right around the time that I was beginning here at Dallas Bible Church, and I was talking with a guy about the church and coming and visiting at some point in time, and he asked me a question I kind of get quite a bit, a number of times, but he says, okay, so is your church one of those like real crazy hand-waving kind of churches and stuff that get really emotional and stuff like that? I was like, yeah, some of us, yeah. Yeah, kind of, some of us are there. And he's like, because here's the deal. He goes, he goes, I love church, but when I go to church, I go to learn about the Bible. I don't go to sing and get all emotional and stuff. Church, how in the world can you behold the beauty of God and think about what he's done for you and not get all emotional and stuff to some degree or another? Like how in the world can we go and just be like, yeah, cool, this is awesome. I mean, does this, does this statement resonate with any of us? Like I, I, I love the Bible church, I love our tradition. Anybody else kind of say, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm more the thinker type than the feeler type? You know, my personality, we're not that engaging in that kind of a deal. Like I am that linear, I am that linear thinker type. I, I, I totally understand a little bit of what he's talking about right here. I just wonder if this may not be some of our default. And I wonder if some of us may think along the same way where we say, okay, church really begins about 30 minutes into the service when God's word is being lifted up. Anybody remember the man church movement that came out about 10 years ago, something like that? Probably wouldn't if, I really hope you missed it. Anyway. Um, about 10 years ago, there's a bunch of people, scholars and writers, and th they're looking around at the problem of the church, and they're kind of saying, hey, you know what? There's a whole lot of, there's a lot more women that come to the church and are fully engaged than men. What's the problem? And they kind of come to the conclusion and say, well, you know what? The church is kind of feminine. Never mind the fact all men are running it, but anyway. Um, it's kind of feminine. M men don't really connect with their emotions. We don't really engage with our feelings very much, and we have a really, really hard time connecting with the idea of loving a dude. Never mind the fact that the entire thing is about loving the dude. And so they said, okay, here's what we need to do. We need to make the church a lot more traditionally masculine, and we need to get rid of a lot of the singing, and definitely all the songs that are all like feely and stuff like that. And, and you know, people applied it in a lot of different ways. Some churches went that entire extreme, and some men's ministries did that. And they said, okay, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to really emote. We're not going to really sing or, or do that kind of thing very much. We're definitely not going to sing these songs that are all about loving Jesus and my heart is yours and things of that nature. But we're going to do just service projects. And we're going to get out there and we're going to work really hard because men like to work with their hands. This is what we like to do. And church, like, don't miss what Jesus is saying here. Great endeavors. We do need to love the Lord our God with our strength, with our mind, with our soul. But Jesus is simply looking at the church in Ephesus and saying, hey, you guys work hard. You guys are great at doing a lot of different things. You guys endure hardships like a beast. And you've forsaken your first love. And you've forgotten that this great commandment is not just for the ladies. It's for the men too. And, and you've forgotten that, that I'm calling you to love me, a dude primarily in Christ, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And ladies, with, that you would engage your mind 
and your strength as well, that you would bring every bit of who God has created you to be to the table out of love and affection for him. That whether you're a man, a woman, or a child, more of a thinker, more of a feeler, wherever you may be, that you would look at the other extreme of your default position and you would say, God, I'm not willing to divide this thing in half. I'm willing, I want to bring the entirety of who I am, all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, and all of my strength to the table, and I want to give it all back to you no matter what my default may be. Church, how in the world can we behold the beauty of who he is and hold any bit of who we are back from him. So Jesus continues, and I don't want you to miss this in verse 5 in chapter 2. He says, consider, church, how far that you've fallen. Repent and do the things that you've done at first. If you don't, here it is. I'm going I'm to come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, here's, here's, what could come, here's what could happen if we don't engage heart, soul, mind, and strength. You'll be removed from my presence as a church body and no longer have my power, not salvation, not losing salvation. You'll be removed from my presence and knowing the beauty of my power. Church, you ever been to a church that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt does not have his power or his presence anywhere near? Maybe the preaching is just a lecture or self-help motivational talk. Or maybe the singing is just dead and empty or else so overhyped that the leadership has put more time into the smoke machine and the, the laser show than actual worship of Jesus. Maybe the ch children's ministry is nothing more than babysitting. Maybe the life groups are nothing more than dinner clubs. Maybe prayer is just non-existent. And no one will gather simply to pray and to pursue the presence and power of God. There's never any testimonies. The church looks the same 30 years later. It's my nightmare as a pastor that we would be comfortable with the church, that we would do church in such a way that does not need or even want the presence or the power of God in any possible way. Church, what in the world are we doing if we're not going to have his power or his presence? What in the world are we doing if we're not going to have his, even on an individual basis, like not even collectively as a church body, what in the world are you doing if you're not going to have his power or his presence in your life every single day. I mean, Jesus is incredibly clear, John 16. Like, it's going to be to your advantage that I go away because then you're going to have the Holy Spirit. You're going to have my presence with you, living inside of you. Your, your body will be a temple of the Holy Spirit. You will have my presence every single day. And it's actually going to be for you better that I leave because every single believer is going to have my presence and have my power every single day. Verse 8, he's going to say that the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin and righteousness. In other words, like that's how you're going to come into all truth, and that's how you're going to begin to change. Verse 13, the Holy Spirit's the one who's going to guide you in all truth. Verse 14, in the end, the Holy Spirit's going to be the one who does it all for the glory of Christ's name. Paul's going to add in Galatians 5, it's the Holy Spirit uh, who's going to set you free from the bondage of sin and produce his life in you, things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Church, like what in the world are we doing if we're not going to have his power or presence in our life? Can we even afford to do this? if we're not going to have it right here. I'll never forget years ago, I was sitting at Northwest Bible Church. It was a Friday afternoon, and the, the offices were pretty empty, and this guy walks in. He did not attend the church. He needed to talk to a pastor. We sit in my office, and he says, I'm on my way to go and uh, get a divorce. And he's weeping, and he's broken, and he's like, I, I, my marriage is done. He went on to describe this scenario where there's just tons of adultery on both sides. There's tons of dishonesty and lying and they never really connected from the very beginning. The things were done. And, and he's like, I don't even know how I got here. And he just wept. And we walked through the word of God together. We walked through the gospel. 
in the end of this whole beautiful thing. He ends up coming to faith. He ends up getting a spark of hope that God may be able to redeem his marriage. He goes back home and in brokenness, which is a beautiful way to come back and resolve things, to come back in brokenness. And he just wept in front of his wife, confessing sin, repenting, and, and, and just acknowledging the destruction that he's brought upon this marriage. And then he told her about giving his life to the Lord and, and hoping that God would redeem and heal their marriage. His wife wasn't there at the beginning. A few weeks later, she also came to faith. Shortly after that, they got into recovery together. Shortly after that, they started attending the church and growing together in church to this day. They are happily together in this marriage, growing together in the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, like what in the world are we doing if we're going to be, dis- if we're going to be distant from his power and his presence? Like how in the world can we even afford to gather and do church or do life in such a way that does not have the power of the Holy Spirit constantly at work in our lives. And what Jesus is saying is that there is a way to do church and there's a way to do life and there's a way to be religious and there's a way to work hard and there's a way to know a lot of different things that has nothing to do with the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he very, very simply says, repent, repent. And I love this. He simply says, do the things that you did at first. Church, do you remember what you did at first when you first came to Jesus? And maybe it's not that. Maybe you remember, like, the, what did you do at first when you first fell in love with your spouse or that high school crush or whatever that may be? You know the word that comes to mind there? It's very, very simply this. It's time. Like, you remember dating your spouse, and you remember what it's like to first come to know Jesus. I remember falling in love with him the end of that sophomore year, and I came home each night, and, and I could not wait to open up God's word and just devour the truth of who he was and, and just soak it all in and to start memorizing the word of God. And I started praying simply sim- just, just to pray and enjoying that time. Sundays would come around, and, and it was just all about going and worshiping with the, with the family of believers and all of its brokenness, all of its dysfunction, all of its bad 80s music, right, like all of these different things and just enjoying the people of God, worshiping him. Like, all I cared to do was just simply to be with him. And you remember what that's like with your spouse, a loved one, right? Like, you had those late-night phone calls. You'd be on the phone for two or three hours talking about nothing. And it didn't even matter to you because, like, you only wanted to be with them. Ladies, like, you went to monster truck rallies and pretended you liked it, right? You're like, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to do on our first date. Like, you did that. And men, like, you, you saw Ryan Gosling movies. Way too many of them. And the only thing that mattered was simply being with that person. And Jesus is simply saying, repent. Do the things that you did at first. Church, some of us need to simply slow down and come back to our first love. That's what Jesus is saying right here. Some of us need to hear these words and to say, you just need to stop. And put a pause on whatever it is that you're doing, all that great religious activity, all those good things, all the great works, all the great study. Just stop for a second. And would you just return to me, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Church, let's not confuse the simplicity of what Jesus is saying right here with its significance.